Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of Your Law Podcast. I am Ozzy V, merely the host that's trying to help you understand all the legalese that we're going to be talking about on these episodes. Of course, I'm not the one that'll be spewing the legalese. That's left for the one with the knowledge, the one with the, the power. That is Andre Verdun. How are you today? Doing good, Ozzy. How are you doing this uh, fine Wednesday evening? Don't lie. It's not fine. And Wednesdays are <laughs> never fine. Wednesdays are like, well, it's Wednesday. That, I mean, uh, a hump day. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, I got to like be honest with you. Fine. I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't want to get distracted there. But technicalities, as in the court of law, technicalities are used. So I just wanted to contribute is the only way I know how. But today <laughs> we're going to be talking about Proposition 25 which is regarding the cashless bail system in California. However, before we go into the meat of what the proposition represents, I feel we should go into the history. And uh, this was actually a law referred to as SB 10, of course, specifically in the state of California. And that was passed in 2018, where an individual would be held on what's called a cashless bail system. So it replaced the money bail system based on a determination of public safety and flight risk. It also limits the detention of a person in jail before a trial for most misdemeanors. Uh, now, as I said before, we get into that. Let's talk about the history. So the 2018 law, it sounds sounds good. In fact, the California's, California Attorneys of Criminal Justice, which you are a part of, if I'm not mistaken, yes. helped write this, this law, SB 10, cashless bail system, uh, primarily to help out individuals that have been convicted or charged with misdemeanors because uh, I don't want to take up too much time talking me or me talking rather uh, someone as you explained to me earlier someone making minimum wage can be charged with a misdemeanor and then bail set at $50,000 somebody making minimum wage to have a bail for $50,000 would take a while they'd have to work two years over two years paying nothing else but the bail and the fact that they're already in jail presents an issue yes you now can't we work do have while you're in jail. Exactly. And then that's where bail bondsmen come in, where it's like, hey, no worries. We'll cover your bail. We're going to take 10% of the bail. So, to the example of $50,000, the bail bondsman would take 5000 And I don't want to say, <laughs> I don't want to repeat rather uh, what happens to that $5,000 if the person's found innocent. Why don't you take that over? Because I might just throw my microphone across the room. Okay. So um, the way it, it, it works is, is that if you're charged with a crime, now, again, charge, not convicted, no evidence presented regarding your guilt, just being charged, the courts will look at what they call a bell schedule. Each county has one, and it will set a particular dollar amount based on the offense that you're being accused to have committed. If the bell schedule states that you have a $50,000 bell and you're not unable to afford that, the way that most people end up trying to get out of jail if they could afford a lesser amount is to take 10% of that amount and give it to a bell agent. Now, the odd thing is, is I hear this every day, people think that, oh, well, then when your case is over, you get that 10% back. And that's not the way it works. That 10% goes to the bail agent. It is theirs the minute you pay it to them. What they do is they use their insurance policy to go to the court or go to the jail and they uh, bail you out through their uh, insurance policy. And then they are on the hook 
for that amount of money until the case is over, whether you plead guilty, you're found innocent. And when the case is resolved, the court will exonerate the bail. The bail bond agency is off the hook. And if there's been no issues, they've profited the 10%. Now, uh, I told you just earlier, I had a case a couple of years ago in San Diego where I had a client that posted 10%, his family did, of a $250,000 bail in a very serious felony case. Four hours later, appeared in court to have the case dismissed. The family lost that entire $25,000. And that is one of the examples of what is wrong with the bail industry here in California. One of the causes for SB 10 coming into fruition is a situation like that. Yeah. So under the Eighth Amendment, the United States Constitution, if you're arrested for a crime, there's a guarantee that you will not be subject to excessive bail. So in California, We've always uh, used these bell schedules and these bell agents in order to operate this, the most costly bell system in the nation. In San Francisco, there was a person named uh, Kenneth Humphrey, and he was arrested for stealing $5 from a neighbor and I think a bottle of cologne. He sat in jail for a year waiting trial because he could not afford to bell out. Would you, I'm, I'm sorry, would you happen to know what that bell was set at by chance? I could probably look it up, but I don't know off the top of you my head. Keep, keep talking. I'll look that up. Okay. The case goes to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals released this long legal opinion stating that for the counties to use a bell schedule and not look at the individual means of the defendant violates the right to excessive bell or violates the protection against excessive bell and struck down the use of these bell schedules as being unconstitutional because the court correctly pointed out that it allows people who are very likely to return to court because they're not being charged with very serious crimes. Uh, they have to languish in jail while they're waiting for their trial, sometimes up to a year, longer possibly. And for right. the record, I did just find the bail amount. Kenneth Humphrey's bail was set to $350,000. Okay, there you go. $350,000 for stealing $5. <laughs> That's that's like a ten thousand percent. Like I, I, the numbers are crazy. But continue. So imagine uh, what, what what amounts to a misdemeanor case that you cannot do more than a year in jail, even if you're convicted. You can't do more than a year in jail, and you certainly can't be fined thirty five thousand dollars because the maximum fine on a misdemeanor is a thousand dollars. But if he wants to get out pending. Custody, he either has to post $350,000 or he has to go to a bail bonds agent and give up 35 grand. And he couldn't do that. So he sat in jail for a year. And the Supreme Court said that these bail schedules punish the poor and they punish the, they, they disproportionately affect uh, communities of color and that this was unconstitutional. Now, the Supreme Court stayed that opinion and granted a writ of certiorari. That was in 2018. Uh, that decision has been pending before the California Supreme Court since 2018. So what happened was the California legislature got to work and they said, we want to codify what Humphrey said, and we want to create a cashless bell system. We want to close down the bail bonds agency, uh, the bail bonds industry in California. And we want to make sure that people are not being held in pretrial detention for no other reason than they can't afford to pay a bail bonds agent or post cash 
to the court to secure their release. So that was the genesis of SB 10. And uh, the ACLU uh, was involved in lobbying and making sure that this bill was written right. As you mentioned, the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice, CACJ, that I've been a member of since as long as I've been a lawyer, was uh, their lobby team was out there working on it. And uh, initially, it was a very strong bill. And I can tell you, too, that I was a part of a cashless bail organization in San Diego, and we were also lobbying to make sure that the, the law did uh, exactly what it was supposed to do, ensure that people are not held in pretrial detention for no other reason than uh, they can't afford to get out, and to have a system that's based on ensuring that people return to court, which is the original concept of why bail is supposed to exist. And uh, so as the legislation started to move through the different committees, the district attorney's offices and the law enforcement uh, uh, lobbyists got involved and they started changing the bill in very, very uh, destructive ways. And what they did was, uh, by the time that the bill made it through the legislator, it, uh, while it still allowed most people who are charged with misdemeanors to be released immediately on, on a cashless bail, it created a protocol in which each person who's arrested for a felony would have a risk assessment done on them based on statistics. So they would gather information about your work history, your family history, your drug history, uh, your education. They'd enter into a computer and it would determine whether or not you were a low risk, a medium risk, or a high risk. Two factors, one, returning to court, and two, whether or not you were likely to commit a new crime while out on pretrial release. So what the legislator then did was, uh, or the lobbyists did while this was in the legislature, was they started to add exceptions. And these exceptions were written in a way where it didn't matter if you were a low risk or a medium risk or a high risk. If you fell into these exceptions, you were presumptively detained till trial. And so without the, uh, this, one of these exceptions applying, if you were a low risk, you're just released. If you were a medium risk, there had to be a determination what condition or combination of conditions could be put in place in order to ensure that you return to court. And that could be an ankle bracelet. That could be uh, checking in with a probation officer. It could be whatever uh, condition uh, that pretrial decides is appropriate to put on a, uh, a person who's accused. But importantly, SB 10 prohibits the pretrial from pushing the cost of these mechanisms onto the criminal defendant. So for example, if pretrial decided you need to wear an ankle bracelet or you need to wear a scram bracelet, which is a device that will tell the court if you're drinking or using alcohol while on bail. Um, if they put that on you, they can't force you to pay for it as a condition of your bail. The county has to cover the cost of that. And then the high risk people would go before a judge and to have a hearing on whether or not they can be released. But by creating these exceptions, uh, some of which are simply having committed previously a battery with corporal injury. Uh, Go ahead and that, define that. Well, a, a battery obviously is a harmful or offensive contact, and a corporal injury can be a scratch on the face. So if you punch somebody and cut their eye, uh, you can be convicted that, of, a, of a battery with corporal injury. And you see these a lot. Be on with your the, record forever. Yes. And you'll see these a lot with the DV cases. Yeah, that definitely sounds it's uh, being taken advantage of by particular DAs. But um, to 
from certain perspectives, they could just be doing their job. It will make it easier for them to obtain the conviction. Now, we should specify that a yes vote on Proposition 25 will hold up this law passed in 2018 will hold up SB 10, so we continue with the cashless bail system. However, with these uh, modifications and restrictions, however, a no vote will completely repeal the law altogether and just go back to the way things used to be. Now, one of the things that you, we, we mentioned Kenneth Humphrey, but just to give an opposite perspective, where Kenneth Humphrey needed to wait a year before his trial because he couldn't afford the $350,000 bail in which he would have to give 10%, $35,000 to the bail bonds agent, and regardless of the outcome, would still be on the hook for that 35000 or rather lost it no matter what. We can look at a case by as with Brock Turner, who, for some reason, had a $150,000 bail set and was able to pay it and then released back into society. And one of my favorite movies of all time is And Justice for All. Uh, specifically, one scene that hits me so hard. If, if you haven't seen this film, I highly recommend it. Jeffrey Tambor plays a criminal defense attorney who, throughout, I'd say a good part of the movie, at least half of it, operates as though he doesn't have a conscience with the uh, cases that he has. He's just doing his job, you know, getting the criminals off. But one of these cases, he got a guy off on a technicality, and then later that night, that individual went and killed two, ki two children. And that Jeffrey Tambor's character took that guilt that he was responsible for the death of these children. So just saying, how do we know that Brock Turner couldn't have sexually assaulted someone else if he really was of unsound mind, but it was able to convince, you know, enough people, oh, he's fine being released on $150,000 bail. He could strike again. And that is another, that could be one more victim. And while one person could say, well, it's just one more victim at the same time, our responsibility as a society is to ensure that there are no victims whatsoever. So that's, that's another side of this. Kenneth Humphrey argument is that we have the wealthy are able to just go out back in society with no problem. Yeah. Because they, they can I, afford to. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Brock Turner case. Uh, he was actually only sentenced to six months in jail for those rapes. And famously, his father said to the judge, uh, Judge Parsky, who I believe got recalled because of this case, uh, my, my son shouldn't suffer for the rest of his life because he had five minutes of fun. Uh, that was an extreme case. Uh, from so many different perspectives, but um, I didn't mean to go specifically in, <laughs> into, you know, his his dealings. But I just wanted to give an example out there where somebody could be charged with one crime and pay the bail because they have the money to, and then go out and commit the same crime if they're not of sound mind. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that you know I have no problem with a person who's 19 years old who's been accused of uh, sexual assault of obviously they'd probably fall into the high risk category of a judge looking at that specific situation and doing an, an individualized assessment and determining whether or not this person should be released and what conditions would protect society and ensure his return to court. Because the one thing that you have to remember is that these are people that are accused, not charged. And so uh, obviously if someone's being charged, even charged with rape or even charged with some of these uh, more heinous crimes, you're going to want to take a very close look at their particular 
situation in order to determine if this is someone that should be released out on the streets. But the the the, the concern here is is that someone like uh, Brock Turner could post one hundred fifty thousand dollars because he come from a wealthy family and he's a Stanford student, uh, where someone like uh, Humphrey, who's sitting in jail on a three hundred fifty thousand dollar bail, it has no chance in hell of ever posting that. But to that point, um, Stephen Summers is the uh, district attorney for the county of San Diego. And the first time that I really became alarmed by SB 10 is when she came out in support of SB 10 and came out in support of uh, Yes on Prop 25. And what she said was, this law will allow my office to incarcerate more people pending trial. And that scares me because that get tell, that gives you a very strong insight into how prosecutors tend to use this law. They tend to use this law not to ensure that people without the means to post cash bail who are likely to return to court to release those people in a, in a way that's fair, but to use it to detain more people pending trial. And so... I come from I come from the perspective that I am not a fan of the bail system. The bail system has to change. The bail bond a- agency needs to die a very quick and swift paint uh, a very swift death. But at the same, you time, know, we can. You started saying it. We can all say painful. You can't because you're a lawyer. But I'll say it. I hope they die a painful death. Living in Anaheim, I see I see a bail bonds office every block. So a painful death is yes. something that I'm wholeheartedly in support of. So SB 10, what it would do overnight, I mean, overnight, it would eliminate the bail bonds industry in the state of California, a very, very financially strong industry. So the no on 25 proposition ballot is heavily funded. And these bail bond agencies are fighting for their life. In fact, uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter, who's a famous uh, bounty hunter, his wife was actually leading the uh, the charge on no on, on yes. She she actually said, "I'm going to stop working on all my other projects and make sure that 25 uh, doesn't pass and that we get this thing repealed." So just so you, you're aware, the reason why Prop 25 is on the ballot is because the bail bond agency uh, agencies, the lobbyists, put it on the ballot. So. That's why we're voting on this, because they had the money, the resources and the ability to say, we don't like what the California legislator is doing. So we're going to pull our money or pull our resources. and We're going to beat this because if we don't, we're dead. Mm-hmm. And it's a powerful industry. So mo- like most uh, criminal defense lawyers and most people who care about fairness were pulled between these two different um, sides. Yeah. Uh, because we don't want to see the bail bonds industry to continue to profit off of poor people. We don't want to see them to continue to pretend that they're part of the criminal justice system or part of a, a mechanism that keeps society safe because they're not. You know, they're, they're not out there following people around, making sure they're not committing crimes. They don't go to people's houses and make sure they come to work. All they do is take the money and send their office. And then if somebody doesn't show up to court, they go pick them up, throw them in jail and keep their 10%. Mm. So, they're going to pretend that they're this very important part of the bail process that needs to be maintained, and they're not. Then you got the criminal defense attorneys who are like, we want to get rid of the bail bonds agencies, but we don't feel like Prop 10 is fair. In fact, I don't know that it's SB 10, Prop 25. Just I'm sorry. 
thank you. Just to make sure there's any, no confusion. Prop 25, SB 10. I personally don't believe it's constitutional. And the reason why is because I think that holding people based on statistics and uh, previous offenses without the ability to bail out actually violates the Eighth Amendment because it guarantees you the right to bail. That's not excessive. Uh, and then, of course, you have the law enforcement uh, industry and the and the uh, DA's office and the different uh, components of uh, that that part of government and the people that support those uh, communities that are supporting this because they feel like it's going to keep more people in custody. So I think that's the three different angles that you have. You have the Bell industry that obviously wants uh, Prop 25 to fail and SB 10 to fail so that they can continue to profit. You got the criminal defense community that I think is split into two camps. Maybe SB10 can get better after we pass it. Let's try to pass it. And the other people saying, no, it's going to be a train wreck. We're going to have all of our clients held in custody. And then you have uh, the law enforcement agency that that's definitely- uh, Basically sees it as more smart. tools in the toolkit. Correct. Absolutely. The other thing that uh, interesting that happened just hours before we started recording was the Humphrey case that I talked about at the beginning of this recording. The Supreme Court, not through an opinion, but through a docket entry on 826-2020, filed an order that states, quote, Humphrey's renewed request to restore the presidential effect of N. Ray Humphrey 2018, 19 Calap, 5th, 1006, is granted in part as to part three. So what that means is that the portion of the original Court of Appeals case that said the court cannot use a bail schedule to just set bail without any type of uh, factors being weighed in is unconstitutional. And that the court has to look at the individual defendant standing before the court and including their ability to pay the bail. So the interesting thing is, even if Prop 25 fell and SB 10 fell, it doesn't necessarily mean that the bail bond agency is going to survive this. Because if the courts have to look at somebody and say, hey, look, you only make minimum wage, you only got $30 in the bank, uh, it would be unconscionable to require you to post cash bail. We're going to have to use some other mechanism similar to what SB10 tried to do to say maybe an ankle bracelet, maybe checking in daily with a probation officer, house arrest, whatever uh, mechanism the court thinks would uh, ensure someone's return to court. I can tell you that, and I'm uncomfortable about this, that the uh, chief justice of the California Supreme Court, who I'm actually a big fan of, even though she's a Republican, she came out in favor of SB10. And she's been championing it uh, publicly. And so if SB10 does end up before the California Supreme Court, on a constitutional challenge based on the fact that it's holding criminal defendants in jail pending trial based on these exceptions that have been written into the law. I'm not so sure that she should be deciding that issue because she's taking a public and a political stance on it. Mm. And so will she, that's another question, but it, it feels really uncomfortable when somebody's saying, now to be sure, The chief justice has been a very, very strong proponent against the current bail system. She has been very concerned about how uh, people like uh, Mr. Humphrey have been uh, incarcerated pre-trial without any charges being proven against them uh, because they can't afford bail. 
And so I appreciate that. But at the same time, there's some very serious defects in uh, SB 10. And if she's already taking a public stance saying we should pass this bill and we should support this bill, I'm wondering if she's going to be willing as a judge to sit down and critique it and criticize it and strike down portions of it if it comes down to that. Because maybe in a perfect world, judges won't allow prosecutors to use this law to unfairly incarcerate people. But it's hard for me to believe that considering what I've seen for the last 10 years as a criminal defense lawyer, and that is people be unfairly uh, detained pre-trial based on these bail schedules and going to court and trying to argue that my client's got deep uh, roots in the community, got family ties, lives at home, doesn't make a lot of money, has no means to escape, all those different arguments, and they're always rejected. And the bail schedules always wins at the end of the day. So uh, you got judges that are used to uh, seeing people sit in jail pending trial. It's cultural at this point. And so are we going to be able to break that culture? I don't know. So there's a lot of different uh, p- uh, moving parts to this. Right. It's it's definitely not a clean cut issue. We've kind of danced back and forth and lightly discussed the arguments for and arguments against. But let's go ahead and uh, delve in to those specifically. First, let's start with the arguments for to go over what would be beneficial if this stayed in place. Obviously, that gets rid of the bail bonds agencies. Um, so people wouldn't have to be on the hook for 10% of the bail. Yes. Obviously the bail bonds men like they, they are able to profit in ways that you really think shouldn't be happening. If you know, in our society, we should be rewarding those who actually provide a, an actual product or service that helps benefit society, not wait for somebody to screw up and then pretend to be the hero that i mean that's that's just how i see it as as i mentioned i see bail bonds agencies on every blocks every block especially when you see when you cross borders into lower income communities you happen to see more of these offices and yeah. that's not by design or rather that is by design it's not a coincidence so one of the interesting points in the uh, voter pamphlet that i noticed and you probably did too was they said there was an unknown economic impact by the amount of money that would be diverted away from bell agencies <laughs> into right. other consumer goods Un- so, unable to tell i mean and and if we're thinking just this one individual uh, humphrey $350,000 bail so that would be $35,000 if he did post bail yes bail bond agency would get 35 grand no matter what it could be so let's say let's just use this story with one you mentioned earlier with the case that you were actually involved in where four hours later the case was dismissed if william humphrey had this had this charge and posted the 350 in bail four hours later it was dismissed he would still have lost thirty five thousand dollars correct and i can tell you listen this happens every single day if you go sit in arraignment court every single day people who are bailed out will show up and there'll be a missing complaint and that missing complaint may never get filed. And that means that that person is released from bail. The judge will say right there, all right, bail's exonerated. You're free to go. We'll send you a letter if you, uh, something's ever filed against you. And in many cases, nothing's ever filed unless new evidence uh, uh, gets uncovered or whatever. So every day, I, I've given you the extreme example of the client that posted $25,000 on a quarter of a million dollar bond. And, you know, you used uh, the possible scenario that could happen if uh, uh, Mr. Humphrey had posted bail. But just so you know, and it may be smaller amount, 
But every single day, bail bond agencies are writing bails, and those cases are not getting filed. And the person who's posting bail doesn't know they're not going to get filed, so they get to court. And that's money that the bail bond agencies, is, they're raking in all the cash, and they're not providing a service. And again, I want to also make sure this, this point is taken into account, is that for a misdemeanor, the maximum fine is $1,000. Correct. So let's say One somebody- One year in jail and a $1,000 fine is the maximum punishment for a misdemeanor. So if somebody is charged with a misdemeanor, but they're awaiting trial, and let's say bail set at $25,000, I'm just throwing a number out there, and they choose, they opt for the bail, they'll be on the hook for that $2,500. And if they're found not guilty, whatever, bail bonds agency still gets $2,500. But if they are found guilty of this misdemeanor, in addition to that $2,500 would be the $1,000 fine because that's the maximum. So really somebody could wait for a trial. So, let, so I'm just going to use me as an example. If I commit a misdemeanor and I'm in jail and I have a trial set, let's just say that day, it's a perfect world and I'm able to see that day, which probably would never happen, but just for argument's sake. And they, they find me guilty and they're like, okay, here's the $1,000 fine because that's the maximum we can give you. Now, I could, I could decide to wait for that trial and bank on that, or I would be spending an unnecessary amount of $2,500 for, I mean, for something I'm going to have to pay $1,000 for anyway. It just, it doesn't make sense. Like, it, it, uh, I mean, it's hard to see this and think like, wait, how is this guy not getting screwed? Like, okay, sure, he's, he's guilty of a misdemeanor, but we're now increasing the maximum fine from $1,000 to $3,500 in this particular case that I'm met, uh, fabricating in my head. It, it, it just, again, seems, pardon my language, pardon my French, ass backwards. Yeah, and I'll tell you another example that I just thought of that we see all the time, especially in San Diego, especially in uh, Stephen Summers, uh, DA's offices use this tactic a lot. I see it in Ventura, I see it in Orange County and LA too, is that you'll show up to court, you got a client in custody, can't afford bail, and the DA's office will say, plead guilty today, we'll let your client out. Well, my client's got a good defense, they wanna go to trial. So, I, so I'll say, no, we're gonna reject that, but hey, why don't we stipulate to a low bail or an OR? No, 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 your client's way too dangerous to be out on the streets pending trial. Well, wait a minute, you just offered to release them from jail today if they plead guilty. But if they say, no, I'm going to assert my right to trial, then they have to sit in, in, in jail for the next six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 months because you feel they're too unsafe. So it's another tactic that the DA's office uses on a consistent basis that tells to me that they can't be trusted. They really can because they use tactics like that sit in jail for six months waiting for trial or plead guilty for something that we have a weak case on and we'll let you out today. And that's not the way that bail should work. It should not be a mechanism that is used to get innocent people to plead guilty. It happens every day. Now, we've, we've gone over the, the obvious argument for, or at least in my perspective, obvious argument for the proposition. Has there been anything that I missed or anything that you'd want to add an argument for? Because I feel that the more we're talking, the more we could be delving into 
the arguments against? Yeah, the arguments for that the most compelling to me is that it handles misdemeanors in a very uh, responsible way. There, there's a few exceptions, and they're usually uh, they're mostly misdemeanors that deal with sex crime. But for the most part, misdemeanors are going to be either a sight and release where you get the ticket and you sign the ticket and you go about your business, or you're released within a couple hours. So uh, they did not do anything to impact the ability of people who are on misdemeanor uh, charges to get released. And I'm, I'm in favor of that. Again, for the people who are voting yes on, on Proposition 25, which would keep SB 10 in place, it also does eliminate cash bail. It eliminates the requirement that anyone pay any amount of money to get released. And if you're a first-time felon and you're not being charged with a serious or a violent crime, you're probably going to get released without any, without any type of money. And that's a good thing. The, the concern, of course, is these uh, provisions that have been put into uh, SB 10 that are the reason why uh, the ACLU and CACJ and others have now switch their positions are now voting no, which we'll, I guess we can get to that next. And I to be clear that everybody understands CACJ is the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice. Correct. And they're a criminal defense lawyers group, that club that meets throughout the year to do trainings and events. But they also have a lobbyist group that goes to uh, Sacramento and lobbies for bills that, you know, really protect the constitutional rights of everybody. And, and it's kind of a, you know, when I teach criminal procedure at the law school, I try to explain to my students that if you think about it, a criminal defense lawyer is really a constitutional defense lawyer, because every time you go to court and there's been a search, it's the prosecutor saying the Fourth Amendment shouldn't cover this. The Fourth Amendment should have an exception for this. And the problem with that is every time that the prosecutor wins that argument, everybody loses that right, because the Fourth Amendment cannot allow an exception for uh, John Doe criminal and not allow that exception for everybody else. So each time they're able to proffer this argument and win these arguments, that the Supreme Court needs to be narrowed, it needs to be shrunk, it needs to be uh, it needs holes in it so that certain people can get uh, searched without a warrant or searched without consent. That's what the government's position always is, shrink the Constitution, narrow the Constitution. What is the criminal defense argument? The Constitution has to be given credence. It has to be given power. It has to be able to protect citizens. doesn't matter how bad the facts of this case are. If you allow the prosecution to win this argument and create an exception for this case against this defendant, because these facts are so egregious, you've stripped that right away from every single American forever. These rights never come back. So it's important, I think, for people to not think of criminal defense lawyers as these lawyers that are out there looking for exceptions to get their clients off and you know, always trying to find some sly way to win their case. And recall that the criminal defense lawyers are out there trying to, first and foremost, protect their clients, but always second, is to ensure that the Fifth Amendment right to an attorney and to remain silent and the Sixth Amendment right to an attorney and to uh, the right to uh, remain silent, Miranda, and the, again, the right to bail. You see that the Humphrey case was a case fought by criminal defense lawyers who said this isn't fair. So this is always the dichotomy is you got prosecutors arguing that the Constitution doesn't mean exactly what it says or should mean less than it did yesterday. 
And criminal defense lawyers always trying to hold those pieces together in a losing battle often. Because if you look at the types of liberties and freedoms and protections we had in the 1960s and the 70s versus today, there are a lot less. And that's because these, these pro-exception arguments and these pro-law enforcement being allowed to search in more instances and to be required to get a warrant in less instances, these arguments are winning. And by winning, it means that you're less protected, I'm less protected, all of us walking down the street are less protected. So we've gone over and we started, to, again, just that alone started to bleed over to the arguments against. So let's just full, uh, let's Bless go and dive in. for trying to keep us on track. I appreciate <laughs> you. <laughs> so let's jump into the arguments full on against. Uh, I could just kick things off, give you a break from talking a little bit. The arguments against that's really hard to ignore is the fact that of the exceptions that you mentioned, where uh, so many prosecutors have created these exceptions that allow extra tools in the toolkit for getting that conviction. Uh, get uh, allowing them more opportunities to com complete their objective. That's that's their job. But at, you know, at the same time, the problems. Well, I, I this is an argument against, so I don't want to contradict myself. But the arguments against, right there, the glaring one that I see are tons of these exceptions that could keep people in in custody, rather in custody longer, due to a widened amount of parameters in which to hold them for these pre-trials, whereas they can say, uh, they can't be, they can't fall under this high risk, medium risk, low risk, because we determined that they're too high of a risk regardless. So we need to, we need to hold them. Am I off base or is that? No, you're absolutely right. Um, look, even as of last week, I was on the fence about how I was going to vote in this thing because, you know, I'm struggling with these same arguments that we're talking about. We want to get people out of bail without having to pay money. Of course, we don't want uh, people to be held without even the ability to post cash bail or any type of bail because of the, the exceptions built into the statute. You know, if you look at the voter pamphlet, there's some really good uh, quotes in there uh, by certain people who, you know, work in favor of passing SB 10 until the law got hijacked. And Andre, I'll just cut in right here and go ahead and read some of these quotes for the arguments against. First is Robin Steinberg, the CEO of the Bail Project, saying, this bill unfortunately is going to lead to people being held in preventative detention based on government's assessment of who's risky and who's scary. That's a terrifying idea. That quote coming from Robert Steinberg and reading that aloud, uh, to a certain extent, reminds me of Minority Report. Like, yes. <laughs> uh, we'll let you out. You know, we can't let you out because we think you'll, you know, do another crime. Well, what do you mean? You think I'll have do another crime? Like, you got a bunch of kids waiting in water that are that are telling you this guy's committed another crime? That, that's what it sounds like, and I, I understand that's that that's what point. it is. That's what it is. It, that's a very good point. And then another quote from the And by the way, oh, yes. before you move on, I think uh -huh. it's important to understand that the, the government assessments being made by judges— and one, one individual. One individual who are almost always ex-prosecutors. Because it's not very often that a person can run against a prosecutor, and when I mean a person, someone like a criminal defense lawyer, can run up against a prosecutor and win. Because the prosecutors can always say, hey, look, I'm the one that put murderers in prison, I put rapists in prison, and my opponent 
help try to keep them out. And so those are very effective arguments when you're running for an election. And then, of course, governors routinely put prosecutors on the bench. I almost never, until Jerry Brown, I almost never saw a person with a criminal defense background put on the bench. And if they did, it was someone who did defense work and then became a prosecutor. Mm. Jerry Brown appointed an unprecedented amount of uh, criminal defense lawyers, mostly public defenders, to the bench. It's not a trend that Gavin Newsom seems to be uh, upholding. So Mm. I just want to make it clear that the person who's making this government assessment of who's risky and who's scary are people that probably were prosecuting people their whole career prior to getting on the bench. Wow, okay. That is definitely important to think of, or to keep in mind, rather. Uh, Next quote I have here from the CACJ, California Attorneys Criminal Justice, say that SB 10 creates a Byzantine maze of court hearings that will ultimately result in greater pretrial incarceration and at a minimum, new opportunities to incarcerate someone before he or she is determined to have actually committed a crime, like I mentioned with Minority Report. Yes. While SB 10 eliminates money bail, the replacement could reduce the options for pretrial release for tens of thousands of Californians each year. So basically saying, yeah, we'll get rid of the bail bondsmen or bail bonds agencies, sure, but the parameters in which someone can still be held are widened, as I mentioned earlier. So that more even a double-edged sword. Last quote I had here, or did you want to add to that? Or I was just going to say, I I think the the point that CACJ is trying to make is that you have taken away the cash system and under the premise that you're going to allow more people the opportunity to get out of uh, of custody, and you're replacing with a system that's probably going to incarcerate those people. Because the people who typically cannot afford to post these large bells are probably the people that are going to fall into these exceptions. People with past criminal histories, people that have missed court per- uh, appearances in the past, uh, people that have committed simple batteries. Uh, I shouldn't say simple batteries, but batteries with corporal injury, which, uh, trust me, in my profession, I've seen mere scratches charged as corporal injury. So uh, that's the concern. Mm. And the last quote actually doesn't seem kind of definitely seems a very uh, neutral stance to a certain degree. John Ralphing, a senior researcher for Human Rights Watch, said, we will not be joining the bail industry's efforts, which I like the way he worded that, like, hey, like, you don't be an idiot here. We will not be joining the bail industry's efforts, but we are not fighting for SB 10. We have a different vision of how to reform the pre-child detention system. So yes. not, it, it sounds like Human Rights Watch is neither for nor against they're they're more in like I, my point of view where it's just like yeah, it's a double-edged sword like you it doesn't yeah. feel like you can win anyway there's gonna be some bad things that'll happen regardless of which way it turns out and it sounds I, like I, oh go ahead i could feel what uh john rafflin is saying as he as you read that because that's how that's the struggle i've had as I worked through the bill, as I worked through the literature, um, I was fiercely in favor of uh, Prop 25. And the more I think I've become sober to the concept that this is really not going to be good for the people who are sitting in, uh, who are accused of crimes, I'm pretty confident at this point that I'm coming out against Prop 25. It, I mean, it's it's hard to, to obviously, there are no clear-cut right answers in anything 
law, but especially when it comes to, I mean, we, last episode, we talked about Proposition 22, and I, at least for me, I found a pretty reasonable conclusion. This is it. Granted, you, you'll have XYZ that could potentially happen, but the, the positives outweigh the negatives. In here, it's like the pros and the cons are feel dead even. Yeah. They feel dead even. And just, yeah, personally, I, you'd want to just blow everything up and start from the beginning. Yeah. You Metaphorically really do. speaking, of course, I don't want any NSA agents to get on my case. <laughs> Relax, chill out, calm down. Especially being <laughs> on the radio with me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, in particular here, let me ask you this. We, is there anything else you wanted to add to the arguments about this proposition? Because I was going to propose, for lack of a better term, a, a question to you in regards to this that isn't necessarily trying to go against or trying to go for. So do you have anything else you wanted to add before I moved on to that question? Um, I, I just think that the, 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 regardless of what happens in November, Bell's not going to be the same. Because we have this Humphrey decision sitting before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's already, uh, through this docket entry, has already stated that courts have to make an individualized assessment of, of individuals and are going to have to consider other means for determining ways in which they can assure people that are going to come to court that doesn't require cash bail. And so I think that on August the 26th, when the Supreme Court made that decision, which Again, I've never seen the court make a such a sweeping ruling by a docket entry, not even a written opinion, because the full opinion is still pending and probably will be the law of the land if Prop 25 fails, because this is going to be the case that's going to really change how Bell is done in California. So we're kind of our options really to see how Humphrey comes out or to go with SB 10. And so at this point, it may be best to see Prop 25 die, SB 10 die, and see what Humphrey says. And then maybe I, something could come out of that. Yes, because uh, my biggest concern is that Prop 25 failed. That people in the legislature are going to think that California has endorsed the cash bail system or has endorsed the bail bonds industry. And I don't think that's what it is. I think you got more people voting against Prop 25 because they want to see the legislator do a better job than they want to see the current system stay in place. And I hope that's not lost on the legislator. Mm. So on to my question, though, is what would be more... I don't want to say likely to happen. What I'm trying to ask is what would be easier? Would it be to vote for this to stay in place and then work on getting it changed, work on further appeals to specifically remove these exceptions? Or would it be easier to vote it down, have SB 10 repealed, and then start from scratch? Because it sounds question. like the former would be more efficient. Similar to what we talked about with Proposition 22, whereas if this fails, the workers can form a union, but uh, who knows how much time that's going to take. And, and who knows if the, the app industry can even afford what will be required if a union forms? Because, you know, we talked about how, you know, with the Prop 22 situation, we don't know how much more meat's on the bone. 
coming back to Prop 25, you know, before August 26th, I think that's why I supported uh, the yes vote on Prop 25 was my biggest concern, like I said, was that the legislator would uh, see a no vote as the state of California saying we want cash bail, we want the, the bond industry, and so they'll just leave it alone. And um, I would almost rather see uh, the bail industry disappear, and then hopefully either the California Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court say you cannot hold people in pretrial custody without the right to bail based on these myriad of exceptions that you put into your law. And that would strike the law down, require them to write something that really gives people the right to not sit in jail and not have to pay money to get out. But like I said, I think a lot has changed with the Supreme Court uh, giving presidential uh, credence to part three of the Humphrey decision, which states that courts have to use an individualized assessment to determine uh, someone's ability uh, to pay bail and then to look at other conditions. Now, under the Humphrey decision, cash bail still exists. So it doesn't do away with cash bail. What it does say is, you know, if I'm understanding what the court's saying, I'm, I'm pretty sure I do, is that if somebody only makes minimum wage, you can't post $50,000 bail as their as a guarantee for them to come to court. In fact, I think you have to, if you're going to use cash bail under Humphrey, I think you have to uh, set bail at an amount that the person who's being held can personally afford, because only that would be something that would, that would encourage them to come back if they had to use money that they earned that they could afford and post that. So I think that Humphrey is going to really, if not eliminate, do a massive blow to the bail industry regardless. But I think that SB 10 is a good statute. It just needs to be stripped of the exception. It, mm -hmm. it needs to stay with the three standards, the low risk, medium risk, and high risk, and let low risk go like it's a misdemeanor. Medium risk, uh, you know, some type of pre-court hearing evaluation on what combination of conditions could assure someone's release. If a pretrial officer, it's probably not a judge, probably a magistrate. Uh, determines this person really needs to go see a judge and they can bind them over for a, a bail hearing. And then the high risk, go before the court and have the court look at all these factors, how much money they make, their criminal history, their job history, how much, how strong the evidence is against them, and to do an individualized assessment on, is there any way that we can release this person on bail and still ensure that they're going to come back? And as a statute, even though I don't think that uh, the Constitution talks about safety to the community, I realize that it's a big part of SB 10 is to ensure that the person is not going to commit more crimes or be a danger to the community while out on bail. So a person could, in theory, be charged with a very serious crime, one that would automatically disqualify them from release under SB 10. But the courts could say, hey, look, we're going to let you out. Because that, because you're still just accused, but you have to be at home, house arrest, ankle bracelet. You have to call in twice a day to. A, they can do all these different things and say, you mess up once, you're sitting in jail until your until your trial. So, I think that SB 10 was a good bill and how it was conceptualized. I just think that bad folks with, you know, I'm sure they don't think they're bad, but you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, people to who the, I think. To them, they're doing their job. Yeah. Well, to them, they don't trust criminals, and they are from a law, law enforcement uh, mindset, and they feel like society's not safe unless everyone's in jail. Everyone that's accused of a crime is sitting in jail until we find out what happened. I don't uh, subscribe to that way of thinking. 
So let me ask you this, though. When, when it comes to the Humphrey case and they say that it, each individual ha- must have an individualized assessment, doesn't that inherently remove the restrictions? Because the restrictions are the restrictions are blanketed. The, okay. It does. It so, absolutely does. Okay. And that's why the Humphrey decision could be better because the court can use cash, but they're not bound by the SB10 restriction. So mm-hmm. they could say, hey, look, the misdemeanor case, you stole $5, uh, you stole a bottle of perfume. I can't use a bail schedule. I have to look at your means. And if you're a person of, uh, that lives in poverty, that doesn't have a lot of uh, financial means, then we need to fashion another way to ensure that you're going to uh, return to court. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe that. In fact, it's easy to say that uh, the detention of Humphrey was unconstitutional under the Humphrey case because that's what the case said. It said that under this fact pattern, uh, the the detention of uh, Kenneth Humphrey under these facts violated uh, the Constitution. So, wow. Well, it, I mean, it, I don't want to get too hold up. We're we're just approaching our borderline. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go on too long, but um, get, go ahead, continue your thought. I was just going to say, uh, I think a lot of people at this point are probably more confident that they're going to get a better result from the Humphrey decision than SB 10. So a lot of people like me who are on the fence, I think you're going to see this start shifting towards let's reject Humphrey. Let's let uh, the, the bell industry die a natural death uh, that Humphrey will hopefully bring about. And even, you know, hopefully the legislator will get to work on revising SB 10 in a way that satisfies both the insurance that people come to court and the insurance that the community is safe while people are out on pretrial release, but also doesn't automatically just disqualify such a vast swap of people just based on um, past history or uh, whatever other uh, uh, exceptions the legislator uh, allowed to get written into these uh, provisions. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, what do you think, let's say percentage, of the possibility that there will be a decision in this Humphrey case before Californians can vote on this? I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think the Supreme Court wants it to happen. Uh, one of the questions— Like 15 percent? I think it's almost zero. Okay. I think that the Supreme Court is purposely holding this opinion in abeyance to see what happens in November. Mm, and then uh, based wh- on the, the result in November, we'll determine how they move forward. Yeah, and one of the questions the Supreme Court requested that be briefed is whether or not the court should even decide Humphrey based on the passage of SD10. So if SD10 passes, the court may say, we don't need to decide this. It's it's a moot because mm-hmm. this type of conduct wouldn't uh, happen under SB10. My concern is, is that it very well could. You mm-hmm. very well could see another Kenneth Humphrey sitting in jail yeah. Uh, for a year on a very low level offense, because not because he couldn't post the amount of bail, but because an exception in the rule allowed a judge and a prosecutor to uh, decide that he was not eligible for release. Right. Wow. This is definitely a, a shade of gray. <laughs> no, yes. it's not black and white. It is a very, very much shade of gray. And. I apologize if you heard the first episode and thought, oh, well, they helped me make a decision, you know, because <laughs> it, it seems so clear cut. The guy does DoorDash and he said he's for it. Yeah. Now, this is uh, more than I mean, I agree. I, I regardless of what you or I are say, 
I, it's so important for each individual to do their own research and not just watch or see or hear one thing or read one thing and then make a decision off of that rather that they take in all perspectives and that's what we're trying to do with this podcast is introduce the separate perspectives here so people can help make an informed decision um but this one i i mean i'm still torn here i'm going to be paying attention to the humphrey case and i i can understand why you believe that there's a zero percent chance that a decision will be made in this humphrey case before the election is passed and i i don't know where where i am on this now of course if there's anything that develops on this if you know in the off chance that a decision was made in this Humphrey case, we'll be sure to cover it. But yes, as of right now, we're just kind of this, like, these are the facts, you know, this is where we're at. This is how things are, are run. And this is what we can go for. But here's the caveat. Bail bonds agencies will still be there. So having said that, I wish I had a better ending here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's law. Uh, yeah. Next, next episode, we will have another discussion. Uh, we'll be determining what that discussion will be about soon. But so be sure to hit the like, subscribe, share with your friends. Hopefully this will be something that can help you. Not, and I, when I say help you, I don't mean again. Oh, well, these guys said this, so I'm going to say this. You know, continue to do your research. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're given a brain for a reason. Don't just believe one thing. Believe tons of things. Rather, j- just go out, hear opinions. So you can make the best informed decision you can in November. So, Andre, before we head out, is there anything else, any final thoughts on Proposition 25 SB 10? I, we had a pretty lengthy, in-depth conversation of it, and I've never been more torn on something. I'm dead <laughs> serious. It is, this is rough. This is, this is rough. So, Andre, again, let me ask any you, final thoughts on before, this? Before, my, my final thought is before... It's not really a thought, it's a question, I guess, uh, which a thought may uh, erupt from. How much did you know about this before we you started researching for today's podcast? It was probably at, when you told me, I want to talk about Proposition 25 and the cashless bail system, I swear that I thought, like, cashless bail system? Like, wait, so all electronic? like i said i'm the host you know what i mean i didn't go to law school i don't teach law school uh but uh i was i was more before this research i was just in the dark about it and if i just heard cashless bail system i would think sure which you know unfortunately i'm i'm gonna be completely honest there are there have been in the past some propositions where it, you know, it's time to vote on, and I see the proposition in front of me, and I think, like my first time voting, I recall, uh, back the first major one, I think, oh four, because that was the first presidential election I was able to vote on, and I remember seeing these particular propositions and thinking, like, oh my god, I was so wrapped up in who do I want for president, <laughs> like you I didn't, didn't think about like, it, like I, I kept. You know, I, I found more, more, I kept trying to find more facts to help support my decisions on, on other issues that were, that, that affected me, that I didn't take the time to research issues that don't affect me yeah. directly. And I think that that can be a problem. So that's why I wanted to have this here, but, uh, I didn't yeah, know anything about it. And if I was an 18 year old kid and I saw proposition 25, 
a yes removes the cashless bail system, a no uh, repeals, or rather, uh, repeals the cashless bail system, and and you'd see the financial impacts, right? And I would see that one, because that would be one I would look at. Yeah. Under the proposition, I would see what are the fiscal impacts. If I don't know anything about it, wh where do the dollars and cents cost me? Yeah, what's my tax and dollars going to go? If I saw that it would be an undetermined amount of money that would be spent on other items, other things that they were not going to the bail bonds industry, I would think, oh well, I have to vote for that because yeah. I hate these guys. Yeah. But when you look into it, you see, you find out about all these exceptions that could actually make things worse, and that's what makes it so freaking difficult to really it does. get a decision on but hey and you know that's I, that's I the nature of the beast i think this is going to uh, uh pass or fail by a, by a very small margin five uh, percent maybe and i think that's why it's important for us to get th this out there because every year people hit me up on facebook or instagram or text message or whatever and they ask you know how should i vote on this and how should i vote on that and that's why i wanted us to get together and talk about this because uh you know i'm a law nerd I teach law, I work at law, I do it as a pastime. And so the reason why I asked you the first question was I was what I was trying to get at was how interesting did you find this? Because these types of close calls have always intrigued me. And so I was wondering as a layperson, uh, what was your interest level on that? On the surface level, I was more like, whatever? I mean, how does it because here's the thing, like tons of people, everybody works. They got stuff going on. So when it comes down to like how they determine what they want to spend time and attention on, a question that's asked internally is how does this affect me? Yeah. And then based on that, well, it doesn't affect me very much. Okay, well, I'm going to spend 5% or a low amount of time researching this because it doesn't affect me directly. But so when you initially brought that up, I was like, all right, cool. You know, like, yeah. and then when you sent me the material and looking over everything, that's when it was really like, holy cow, this is, this is pretty heavy. Like, yeah. and then, and it, it, what's even more is like the, the curve of the California Supreme Court saying what they did even just was more like, okay, so now they're noticing like yeah. something, there's, there's just a big issue here and both sides aren't, don't feel like the correct answer. Much like the, uh, Human Rights Watch response. While we do not support the bail, the bail bonds, uh, their campaign, we do feel there's another way. And you know that was very lightning the way you just put it. Neither answer sounds like the right answer. It, and it's, I it's agree terrible. with you. There is no right answer here. It's it's a matter of okay, well, regardless of what happens, there's more work to do. Yes. It so all the the all the decision is whatever we're. we're what the result proposition 25 all that will mean will mean what the next steps are Correct. if it votes yes steps x y and z will be followed to try and remove those exceptions that we talked about and if it's a voted no then it's almost like back to the drawing board okay yes. how, and, and how can we write something that'll get rid of these guys that will not make it sound bad that and so either way there's more work to be done this is definitely not, oh, well, we voted on this and now everything's fine. Like, uh, it could be as, like what, uh, what will be appeared to be as Proposition 22, because that's been the whole app issue. That's been an issue for a while. Yes, and absolutely. Been a, that's been an issue for, and, and this would make it seem like, oh, okay, cool. So now these guys get this. That's okay. Case closed. 
But then this is just like Proposition 25 is more like, okay, this is a step in a very long process. Yeah, it may result. No matter nothing. how the result is, there's going to be tons more work to do. Yeah. And hopefully that's because the other option is we get Prop 25 and we get uh, SB 10 and we're stuck with it. So that would be almost a, I won't say it, it could be worse than what we have now. So it's a, uh, it's a very big struggle. Um, like you said, both options are wrong. Yes is wrong and no is wrong. And so the only right answer is we got to get this right. And whether it come from the Supreme Court or as it should come from the legislator, uh, we got to get this right. So versus, so instead of somebody, and I'm a huge movie buff, right? Instead of seeing this as, uh, as I mentioned, the film and Justice for All, which was just one film, you watch it, you're good. Okay, that's all I need to know about. By the way, the movie that made me a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody should watch that. They should, that movie should be shown in school. (laughs) No, I'm dead serious. I I should have watched that movie, my American government class. And that would have given me a completely different perspective yeah. on the judicial system. Uh, but anyway, I didn't want to get distracted there. Whereas somebody could, it's, it's like when somebody goes sees a movie and like, okay, great. I saw that story. Great. We have this proposition. It passes, it fails. That's all they need to worry about it. No, this is like, this is like one of the Harry Potter movies. Yeah. Like, no, this is just part one or part yeah. two. There's still other parts we got to go through. And I think that's, if, if anybody listening is really, you know, wants help to figure out should i vote yes or should i vote no one thing to more think of is how to move forward based off of that like what i'm going to be struggling with is if i vote yes how easy will it be to work on or get sb10 worked on to remove these exceptions and if it fails how much work will it take to get rid of the bail bonds industry because that's primarily where I think the a lot of people will see the draw yeah. to the proposition. Oh, it gets rid of the bail bonds agency, sure. Because what do you see on the on the advertisements? It'll say vote vote uh, no on twenty five, and then you'll see the fine print paid for by Association of Bail Bonds Agencies. And you know, everyone's gonna be like, I don't trust that. Whatever. But yeah. then who's and then the yes, or rather than the people that are fighting, uh, rather both sides are gonna be. Example, exemplified uh, in, to an intense amount. And I'm not sure because this doesn't affect a lot of people directly, they'll just more see it as, oh, just these two sides going against each other. And I, I think it'll come down for some people. It's like, well, what's the fiscal impact? That's a pr- and the, the whole issue of it's unknown what the fiscal impact will be because of what the money that would be going to the bail bonds industry will not no longer be going in there. And that's also, a huge thing. But at the same time, like these exceptions, it, if, torn. If, if SB 10 actually did, uh, have most people out on pretrial release, there would be a fiscal impact there as well, because you would have a tremendous savings in the food cost, the housing cost. Uh, the personnel cost. Of course, there will be an additional cost in putting the system together and then whatever costs are associated with uh, uh, actually executing the pretrial release. But regardless, I don't know that this is about uh, 
money as much as about fairness. And so for too long, I think that there's been a, uh, an inherent unfairness in the criminal justice system, especially in, as it relates to sentencing. That's another episode. But also in this concept of how it relates to pretrial release. I, I agree. And it's going to be a difficult decision for a lot of people. And if you're listening and worrying about making the right decision, with I can I'll tell you right now, and this is my personal opinion on it. And feel free to chime in if you feel differently. But again, no. With this proposition, there will be no right answer. It'll just be a matter of okay, how do we move forward from here? Yeah, it's it's a part one or part two in a seven part series. Whatever result happens in November, that it that cannot be the end result is the way I'm looking at it. So as we sign off, I think on uh, Prop 22, we, we both kind of agreed that we were probably going to vote in favor of the proposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a proposition that originally I, I was sure I was going to resist and, and oppose. And after reading it, I felt like it was probably the best solution. You feel comfortable talking about your gut feeling today as to how you're going to... For 25? For 25. Holy Toledo. I, I, I don't. I, 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 part of me... The first gut instinct is, yes, screw these bail bond agencies. They've been making X amount of money for however many decades based on a BS system. Hundreds of years. That's the beginning of time in California. There you go. But then at the same time, you have all these exceptions. And I'm, I'm right now, I would say I'm... 5149 voting for it for it and hoping or rather trying to be a part of something that would help to get these exceptions repealed but at the same time that also seems very minuscule of how it'll be very difficult it'll be an uphill battle absolutely and i think that's been made to a certain degree by design be so difficult because I mean, hey, if votes no, then we still got the bail bond agencies here for X amount of time until we figure out something else, something else out. So that's that's where I'm torn about. And you are you are correct. It shouldn't be about money. It should be about fairness in the system. And either answer doesn't grant fairness is yes. what I see, which is the biggest concern. This bill primarily focuses on financial issues of it but doesn't really take the fairness into account because both sides have their downfalls when it comes to fairness. So I'm still torn. I'm, I'm still going to be, I'm going to be paying attention to this Humphrey case. I'm going to do tons more research on this before November. Absolutely. That's, that's where I'm on it. I, I like you said, if we, anything new crops up, any new arguments of interest or any new legal uh, decisions, we'll definitely be covering them here. Absolutely. And we have run over somewhat, but it was a lengthy conversation that we needed to have because it was such a muddied topic. Uh, But we will be back again with another episode soon. So again, as I mentioned, feel free to hit like, subscribe, share with your friends, and we'll be back next time with another episode of a thrilling discussion. (laughs) Until next time. (laughs) Until next time. He is Andre Verdun. I'm Ozzy V. And we'll see you next time here on The Law, your law podcast. 